Happy Friday. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer for New Mexico in Focus, and this is the podcast version of New Mexico in Focus for Friday, December 27th, the very last Friday of the year and decade. And what a treat we have in store for you. It's one of our favorite shows of the year. This is when we count down the top stories of the year that was 2019, which is a crazy year. So much news to cover. It was really hard to narrow it down to 10. I'm sure you'll have some disagreements. We'd love to hear what made your list, what you think was left off of our list, and what's going to carry over into the new year. We do this each year with a very special line panel. It's all local journalists, and we're thrilled to have Gwena Dolan. She's a regular contributor here at New Mexico in Focus. She's also an adjunct instructor at the UNM School of Journalism and Communication, the department there. Andy Lyman with the New Mexico Political Report joins us again this year. He's a great guest to have for this. And we are thrilled this year also to add to the table Jessica Ansures. She is the news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus. So great to have her in there. She does a lot of great work down there, and it's great to have the Southern New Mexico perspective to add to these conversations about these top stories of the year. Another special guest to round it out. You heard from him on the show just a couple weeks ago. Newly retired Capitol Press Corps member Steve Terrell. Of course, a storied, long, and uh, well-awarded history career at the Santa Fe New Mexican just has done a lot of great work. We wish him well in retirement, but we couldn't let him jump into that full, fully until he helped us count down the top stories of the year. And so great to have Steve there as well. Another great thing in the show this year, it's kind of a look back at some of the other stories we told this year. One of our favorites was a pop-up park that was put up in the International District just in a dirt lot. A lot of local great organizations came together to put this park together. We talked to the organizers, we talked to neighbors about what this meant for their neighborhood, and it's just a beautiful piece done by Kevin Maestas here on the New Mexico and Focus crew. We think you're going to enjoy it. If you already saw it the first time, you'll enjoy it still. Lots of great stuff in there, great tidbits, and a great example of communities coming together. So a terrific show. We will continue our countdown of the top stories of the year next week here on New Mexico and Focus as we kick off 2020. This week, it's numbers 10 through number 6. So enjoy, and we will talk to you soon. Funding for New Mexico and Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, we look back at a summertime effort to create a community oasis in one of the hottest and least wealthy parts of Albuquerque. It's not a cure-all, but it's a start because the start of it is someone care, someone cared enough to come put this here. Plus, we're counting down the year's top stories as our panel of journalists look back on 2019. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Happy holidays to you if you're doing that sort of thing. As is our tradition here, we're ending the year with a review of some of the top stories, things like the president's campaign visit in September. We ranked them from 10 to 1, but this year seemed to produce a lot of stories that seemed equally important. Among today's topics are the governor's first year in office and environmental contamination at New Mexico's Air Force bases. We also take a break from our countdown to revisit a story from August when it was much warmer than it is now, we trekked out to one of the hottest parts of the city to see a community coming together to create a pop-up park. Here's our panel of journalists. 
In September, President Donald Trump packed the Santa Ana Star Center for a campaign rally in which he declared New Mexico in play for his 2020 re-election bid. That's despite the fact that he lost the state in 2016 by eight percentage points. But native son Gary Johnson siphoned off enough votes to at least theoretically take the state away from Mr. Trump. Here to offer their thoughts on the president's chances and all of the year's top stories, our guests. UNM journalism instructor and frequent NMIF contributor Gwyneth Dolan's with us. We're happy to have the editor of the Carlsbad Current, Argus, and the news director for the USA Today papers across much of the state. Jessica Onsores is with us as well. From the New Mexico Political Report and a familiar bearded face at our table, Andy Lyman's with us. In the recently retired Santa Fe, New Mexican writer and dean of the Capitol Press Corps, Steve Terrell. Thank you, Steve, for being with us. Absolutely. Now, Gwyneth, as I mentioned, all, if all Gary Johnson's votes would have gone to Mr. Trump, he could have taken the state, but does it really feel like New Mexico is in play as he states? Um, in my conversations with mm -hmm. people who are looking at these numbers really closely, they don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a, an elect, you know, we, we did have this huge rally, right? Well, yeah, there are a lot of Hispanic Republicans. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think, as usual, New Mexico follows national trends. Uh, very well. Right. And um, so, yeah, almost half of New Mexicans are Hispanic, but they are uh, far more likely to vote Democrat. And mm -hmm. that's what they've been doing, and that's what the trend is. So anything can happen. But I don't see a lot of evidence outside of a lot of people who really wanted to go to a big fun thing. Right. Jessica, I have to turn to you on this one. Okay. Down to your neck of the woods, he has strong support, certainly. But the question, of course, is how does the president expand that footprint out of that area? You know, that's a really interesting question. Yes, mm -hmm. we're the red part of the state in a mm -hmm. very, very blue state. Um, and especially since the, our second congressional district just turned blue for, we that's lost right. Steve, Steve Pierce. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that you will see a lot of this idea of grassroots movement, really um, the one-on-one -on -one talking to each other, knocking on doors, and really looking for that Latino vote to move in that direction. But something of interest to us is always the numbers as well, right? How many Democrats do we have registered in this state versus is Republicans, and you'll see a large number of those in southern New Mexico. Um, but I think, and I agree with Gwen, I don't think that, that maybe it's realistic to consider a huge Trump win, as he stated. Mm -hmm. Steve, same question. Certainly, uh, the president has been very clear he wants to go after Hispanic voters. Certainly, Gwyneth brought that up first. Is that a possibility, really? And if it is, how much of a percentage does he need to peel off to really make this competitive? It's, that's going to be a tough fight. One thing uh, I, I agree with uh, what our colleagues both said here. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think his chances of carrying the state are very good at all. And I don't buy the premise that uh, he's just going to win all these Gary Johnson voters. Uh, Gary Johnson, I've seen his uh, Twitter feed lately, and uh, he's, he's, he's not a Trump fan. No, he's not. And I think uh, a lot of people who voted for uh, Gary Johnson uh, in 2016 we're either doing it just to be contrary because, oh, yeah, Hillary's got it. I'm just going to protest vote. And there's a lot of uh, pro-marijuana people who vote. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm stoned and I vote. Uh, but uh, they, um, you know, they're, they're not going to go for Trump. And so um, as long as the Democrats have someone who's not completely crazy uh, running, I, I think uh, mm -hmm. Trump doesn't have much of a chance here at all. Interesting point there. Andy, I... I purposely kept you last on this one because I consider you our resident expert on these things because you were there, <laughs> the Johnson folks, and part of the great reporting that you did this year was, was that event it, uh, itself with those mm -hmm. folks. I want to get a sense of the vibe of where they, wh who are those voters, those Gary Johnson people that you witnessed in those rallies? And uh, stuff? There, there are a lot of um, 
I think Republican voters from back in the day. I mean, yeah. they're still Republican voters, but they were uh, people that remembered him as governor that that uh, thought that he did a lot of great things while he was here. Um, I think it's a lot of the quote never Trumpers as well, people that are kind of figuring out where they fit into the current Republican Party and mm. uh, and. Now, coming around, if it were the same this year, I don't know it would be the same or not, right? I mean, he's, mm -hmm. Gary Johnson has run for uh, president and senate in the past two major elections Wait, here, and right. so I think there might be some public opinion that's like, okay, enough. But you know what, nine points or eight points, whatever you want to cut it, is yeah. not that small a number. I mean, that's a pretty sizable number. That's something up for grabs there. Is there a path there for the president in your view now that you've seen these folks? No, I mean, I don't, I, I, th I agree with Steve. I don't think that that translates to people that would otherwise vote for Trump. I mean, they, I don't yeah. know where, who they would vote for, but they may just not vote. I don't know. Uh, right. they're, they're not, I don't think they were necessarily people that, uh, um, would just go to the next R if Gary Johnson's not there. So mm -hmm. it's, it's mm -hmm. really hard to say where they're, they're going to go this year mm -hmm. or next year. You know, Gwen, the idea that Democrats might or should have to coalesce about around someone quickly to be able to get this thing going regardless of what the president wants to do. Let's talk about Democrats here for a quick second. What do they have to do if the president's going to make this push? Do they have to shore up certain areas, certain metros? What's the strategy there for Democrats? Um, you know, I think the Democrats need to remind people what they stand for mm. and they need to bring it home to specific issues that are going to resonate here. I think sometimes we see uh, candidates come to New Mexico and talk about a whole bunch of stuff that really means nothing to mm -hmm. us, you know. Um, and people here just want to know, like, what are you going to do to help us bring economic development? What are you going to do to hit these really core values mm. um, that we have here? Um, I think they need to get around and be here, which mm -hmm. they're often not, right. um, and create some enthusiasm and distinguish themselves from people who came before. Mm -hmm. um, dare you throw out a name of any Democrats that you think might do better in New Mexico than others? Is there? I dare not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to turn to Steve Terrell and ask that very same question. Assuming, <clears throat> let's just throw a couple names out there. If it's Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren, how would she do in New Mexico versus Trump? Do you, see, you see what I mean? I want to kind of kick around a couple of she names. She might here. have a little harder time here. She's, yeah. uh, I know a lot of people who really like her. She's very popular up in Santa Fe and uh, I, I believe Taos. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Taos is probably more Bernie. But uh, right. the, uh, yeah. uh, she might have more trouble in a, a Biden or uh, uh, someone more moderate. Uh, right. So, uh, but, Jessica, uh, but oh, I, think, I, I think she could win yeah. New Mexico. Yeah. Go ahead, Jessica, pick up on that if you would too. Well, doesn't have to be Elizabeth Warren, could be any of the Democrats. Who do you think would have a better chance here? You know, if we're talking about southern New Mexico, maybe none of them. Okay. Um, we have a really, we have a really strong um, Republican sense of what are you doing for our economy and oil and gas plays a huge role in that and so when you have candidates saying well we want to move in this direction away from fossil fuels and right. into this direction then you're talking about people's families people's livelihoods um so i mean the state generally i'm 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 thinking maybe biden elizabeth mm -hmm. warren i think would be well received um just generally but i think that all of them have a really tough play when you talk about the state as a whole including the the southern portion and the southern sentiments interesting point there Andy, i want to finish with you on the same question any names you think that would work better here than others i mean i, I hear the point about biden in moderate i, I do hear that but it's interesting yeah in i think culture. i would go with with that as well yeah. um i think we have a lot of democrats in the state who are moderate Democrats and they're not necessarily ready for super progressive person. I think Warren is another person that, mm -hmm. that could do well here. You also have to remember there's some pretty unique counties in the state. Uh, Los Alamos County, mm -hmm. I think in 2016 was the only county in the state that did not, that, that voted Republican but not Trump. It was oh. Ted Cruz. Uh, 
So there's little pockets here and there where, where people are very, you know, set in their ways and their county is very isolated from the rest of the state. That's so. interesting. We'll keep it moving now with another story that has both Washington, D.C. and New Mexico as its focus. It's the race to replace outgoing U.S. Senator Tom Udall. This is important, but as we discussed when we decided how to rank these stories and what to include, it isn't the deck-clearing free-for-all that Pete Domenici's retirement was. Boy, that reshaped the, the landscape. For sure. But does this feel like it has the potential, Gwyneth, to do the same? Is this the same kind of environment where this Udall leave and folks coming in as, as, as aggressive? What do you see out there? Well, <clears throat> in terms of deck clearing, probably not quite the same dynamic there because I, I think it's uh, pretty certain that he'll be replaced um, by a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Numbers-wise, that's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's a bunch of those candidates. Some of them have pretty big names, some of them attracting a whole lot of attention. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure there are going to be big fireworks there. Mm. Interesting. Andy, pick up on that as well. I'm going to throw a name out here, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. We had her in, then out. Mm -hmm. uh, seemed like that deck-clearing thing we were talking about a little bit ago it did seem to happen, but Go ahead and, and, and touch on where this is all at. Well, at I think point. her leaving the race was a game changer for both sides. I mean, it just completely changed the thing. Now, everyone on the on the right, the left side, excuse me, is just laser focused on on getting uh, mm -hmm. Ben Ray Lujan to to uh, to win the election. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, it kind of threw a wrench in the Republicans because now they've they're they're still trying to figure out who that person is that's, right. that they're going to put up against uh, a pretty well-known already politician in the state. We'll touch on that in a second. That Republican yeah. competition. I appreciate you mentioning that, Jessica. The idea that uh, is that heralded name Udall. You know, it's a mm -hmm. tough thing to follow. You know what I mean? But for Democrats, it is an opportunity. You would have thought you would have seen more people get in, but a Senate race is an awfully tough thing to pull off financially. Yes, you know, it's, it's the hardest, as a matter of fact. But, you know, for Ben Ray Lujan, it worked out beautifully for him, didn't it? It just all shaped. It all came yeah. together really, really well. I think um, we all understand that that, yeah. that seat, the CD3 seat that mm -hmm. he's leaving to run for Senate, is kind of the jump-off point for um, Senator Udall's seat. Mm -hmm. So I'm with Gwen when we say it's pretty locked in, in my mind, when it comes to here is this candidate. He's a great Democrat candidate. Um, the Republicans are still fishing around for somebody who can run against him. Mm -hmm. Steve, your, your take on this as you pull back the lens and look at this whole Senate race. Yeah, well, <clears throat> well um, what you said is completely true. Uh, the, you know, it, Ben Ray's got it in the bag now with the nomination, which is completely different than the Domenici thing because uh, he had both Heather Wilson and... Uh, um, uh, and Steve Pierce right. uh, running right. against uh, the other two, yep. uh, the two Demo the Republican Congress people. That's right. And now, you know, Maggie was in there. She dropped out. But she's not going anywhere. She's still Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, so the real contest is the CD3 uh, 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 House seat. Sure. Uh, so, uh, let, let me peel back to Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. You just mentioned her. I'm curious about how you see her future. She, she can finish out her deal here now, certainly in the job she has now, but what's next for her? She took this run, didn't quite work out, but did that leave her in a better position for another run down the road? Well, there's, um, even the Democrats who weren't supporting her, uh, you know, appreciated that, so uh, she may have something in her future. I'm not sure which job she's interested in after, uh, mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, maybe governor someday, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I don't know. and I. You know, that, that's a few years off, assuming uh, Michelle uh, runs for another term. That's right. So um, yeah, it's she's got a watch, while. Though. Yeah. You know, Andy, let me go back. I mentioned, uh, the, I want to circle back to the Republicans. You mentioned that a second ago. Uh, there's really no clear-cut 
name out there. We've been kicking around Steve Pierce. No one's really quite sure what he wants to do with his life right now, mm -hmm. run the party or just be out completely. Can the Republicans come up with anybody at this point? Um, a viable fight? It's late yeah, I mean, in the I, game. Yeah, I think that it can still be done. I think, okay. I think that, that there's probably just some talks that need to happen within the party or the people and, and try to figure out. I don't know exactly what happened between uh, Ben Ray Lujan and, and Secretary Toulouse Oliver, but mm. something similar of let's try to weed some of these things out and see if we can find some common ground. Uh, Mick Rich is the biggest name probably there, and, and right. of course uh, Gavin Clarkson too, but Mick yeah. Rich already ran for Senate. Um, and he, this is a, basically what he did before, just a different, different, right. a little bit different landscape. But. Yeah. God, Gwyneth, we had on the Republican side so many names. I can think of Alan Way. Uh, so many people over the years have really, really, really wanted this seat. I mean, Republicans really want to have a Senate seat here desperately. And you can't blame anybody for wanting it. So what do they have to do? Who do they have to come up with? What, what's the game plan at this point? Or do you just flat out concede a, a Senate seat? That would be unheard of, it would seem to me, by putting up somebody that's not competitive. I know we're going to talk about this later, but mm -hmm. it probably comes down to redistricting. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. um, the we have fought so many battles over the shape of that district that's and right. what it includes. That's but right. um, go ahead, go ahead and expand on that. That's an interest. This is an interest, interesting time to touch on that, if you would, just for a minute or so. What that means for that for these races? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just going to be a tough race for a Republican to win right now. Mm -hmm. And in the redistricting that's coming, they're going to make it a hell of a lot harder. Mm -hmm. So I think the Republicans are going to probably have to write it off for a little while. Wow, interesting. Pick up on that, Steve. That's an interesting point there that uh, Republicans are going to have to kind of check chill for a while to see what, how this all shapes out. But again, how do you build a party doing this? That, that just doesn't quite work in some circles. Yeah, it's, uh, they're in a tough spot. Mm -hmm. They're in a tight spot, as they say, you know, brother, where art thou? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think they will be sitting it out whether they want to or not. Right. Uh, you know, you were talking about Mick Rich, uh, and he's a real nice guy, mm -hmm. but he lost to Martin Heinrich, and if you're going to take a Senate seat, you know, the second year or the second term is when you, when you go for it, mm -hmm. and uh, he could have been, Heinrich could have been vulnerable perhaps. Mm -hmm. It was a bad year for Republicans in the state, but mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, not going to be much better this next year. Right. He's a crazy one, Jess. The idea of Sochil Torres Small running oh, for wow. Senate as opposed to, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's almost easier in a weird way because mm -hmm. there's so many Republican challenges coming into that district. It's right. so targeted well, you at know, this point. Um, Sochi, as we, we finally call her down, down mm -hmm. south, um, I think that she's pretty wedded to her, to her seat now. So I'm not sure that's a possibility, but mm -hmm. maybe in the future. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if you look at strong candidates, somebody who um, is able to pull in um, the support, the money, the funding, and mm -hmm. the big names to get behind them, she's probably one of the stronger candidates. But I um, I have a really hard time picturing her jumping out of one seat and trying for that. Yeah. And Staying, me, go ahead, please. Just, Jean, Absolutely. Clear that when I was talking about redistricting, I was uh, talking about the House races. Yes. Right? Um, which I think are going to be locked down in CD1 and CD2, right. CD3. Mm -hmm. um, not CD2, but, you know, the Senate races, um, it, it's going to be really hard to capture uh, folks who are not used to voting for candidates mm. who are going to capture races down. Um, in the south, southeastern part of the that's state. A good, that's an excellent point. That bounces me right back to you, Jess, on this. I'm curious about Claire Chase down there mm -hmm. and what she's been up to. She's raising money. 
Yes, she's doing, so she's well. doing really well in the yeah. raising money um, sphere. She's, she came up uh, against some really hard criticism for some past statements about Trump from the Republican Party and from um, those inside the Republican Party. But when you look at her mm -hmm. as an overall candidate, I think that you'll find somebody who's really well positioned um, to move forward in that, in mm -hmm. that party. Mm -hmm. Let me finish with CD3, Steve. Is it safe to assume it is still a safe seat the way it was for, for Ben Ray? Is uh, it for the Democrats? For yeah. Democrats, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't even seen very many Republicans anybody's heard of running, and uh, I, I'm one of the few people in the, that district not running for Congress. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, it's a big field, right? I mean, it's getting bigger by the. It is. It is, and um, it's what safe seats do. They yeah, and, uh, attract. If you can ask me to make a prediction who's going to win it. That it's just spinning the wheel right now. Is the district evolving in some important way politically? Has something happened that might surprise people the last four, five, six years? Population changes, a different sort of. I mean, I can't personally can't see it, but you never know in politics. It's well, it's got some very conservative areas. It's got northwestern New Mexico, the oil patch up there. It's mm -hmm. got uh, uh, Clovis, and uh, you know the east side of the state. Um, but now, I, I, if anything, it's becoming more uh, liberal. Los Alamos used to be a Republican stronghold. It's, it's no longer is. That would shock most people. Yeah, since, since yeah. Jeanette Wallace last won uh, all right. those years ago. Uh, they haven't had a representative from Los Alamos who's a Republican, and uh, mm -hmm. um, if anything, it's become more liberal because uh, the urban areas are growing, Santa Fe, and mm -hmm. uh, um, so that's, um, yeah, I, I don't see much of a change there at all, really. Yeah, interesting points there. We're going to take a quick break before with this group. We'll be back in a few minutes to start back in at the year's eighth biggest story. New Mexico in Focus is on Twitter and Facebook. Follow us online to get updates on upcoming shows and tell us what you think about the top news stories of the week. Then tune in because we may share your comments on the line. In August, it was sweltering, especially in Albuquerque's International District. According to the Nature Conservancy, it's one of the hottest parts of the city. It also has fewer public parks than other neighborhoods and a host of abandoned or neglected properties. A group of neighborhood supporters saw it as both a challenge and an opportunity. Here's a look at the work they did along with the Nature Conservancy and the Rocky Mountain Youth Corps who debuted the park this summer. So the pop-up park is the idea that one day it's a vacant lot and the next day a park pops up. What it means is that we transform the space and if the owner of the lot decides I love this and I want to keep it, we can permanently install it here. But if they decide no, then we can move it to another dirt lot and in that way have people imagine more green space in dirt lots. And as a community member, beautification is everything. If you put your hands in the soil, if you paint it yourself, if you help construct it, you own it. You feel like, oh, this is where I live. This is where I play. This is where I work. This is a brand new project. It's an idea that came together out of many partners, uh, partner organizations. And so we've been working with probably 15 different organizations. And really, it's been a community-driven process. So we held, over a year and a half, a number of community meetings where the residents in the area designed what they wanted this park space to look like. And then we're just here to support that vision coming to reality. This is my community. Um, I love projects that come into the neighborhood and involve them. Um, involve them with not just 
um, oh, here, we have plans for you. The, that's not the way to go. The way to go is to actually get their inputs. At the very beginning, I think it's important there's a volunteer effort from the neighborhood and from the surrounding neighborhoods because at that point, the city realizes that, you know what, hey, they care about their neighborhood. They, they, want, they want it to stay there. It's just awesome. I'm just really amazed at what these people were able to come up with. I was seeing the sketches, but I still couldn't see the park until today, you know. If you look at park space, city park space and county park space, there really is inequity in the way that those green spaces are distributed. And so this is an opportunity for us as community members to come together and support the community and support each other in how we change the way that we distribute these green features in our city. So it just has like this deep sense that what we're doing has a lot of value and importance um, in a place that, that needs more people coming out and giving back to the community to help maintain our green spaces and maintain our spaces that everybody can enjoy. When many organizations in a community come together to collaborate, it builds relationships. It also means that people will take care of this space when it's done because so many people have been involved in envisioning it and making it. And then it's really important in general to, to show that an, an initiative like this takes a lot of partners and a lot of people. And so it's truly a, a community collective effort and it's a beautiful thing to make things happen with many other people involved. We need more stuff. You know, our neighborhood, um, you know, has been given a black eye for quite a while. And now, you know, with the new, you know, city administration looking at doing a lot for uh, some of the left out, so to speak, neighborhoods. And this, this is a start, you know, it's not a cure-all, but it's a start because the start of it is someone care, someone cared enough to come put this here. Well, the International District is an urban heat island, so the predominance of concrete and asphalt in the neighborhood, as well as empty dirt lots, raises temperatures in the summer or whenever it's hot, and that's particularly risky for the elderly and for young kids, but for anybody that has health problems. So we need more green space in general in the International District and more shade and also more art. A lot of our local canopy or our tree cover around town um, is getting old and dying or it is dying off because it's responding to uh, an increase in heat and a variability in drought conditions. Um, and so uh, particularly in the International District, there's a very small amount of canopy cover. Uh, so what we're trying to do is increase the amount of green space in the community and also inspire more moves to increase that green space, um, not only from like outside initiatives, but also like from within the community and uh, private landowners. Okay, and so we officially open this park and welcome you to use it, enjoy it, care for it, support us, and our community effort to make the International District a greener and more beautiful place. Thank you all for coming. For as long as my mom's had a home in this neighborhood, as long as I've been through this neighborhood, nobody remembers anything that's ever been here before. Nobody remembers what used to be here. Everybody only associated with just a dirt lot. 
And now with this, it's it's good. It's it's different, and it just brings a little bit of little bit of like you know what I can get out of my apartment. I can walk out of my house and go sit down somewhere and just just relax. I'm thinking and hoping that when the community actually see the completeness of this part, that it would instill pride that someone thought about our neighborhood and wanted to do something that was inviting to the community as well. So the, the feeling of caring can resonate up out of this. So if we can care enough about a vacant lot, we can care enough about the inhabitants of the area. We're back and ready to discuss story number eight in our review of the year's biggest stories. It's the emergence of chemical contamination in groundwater near our two Air Force bases here in New Mexico. The harmful chemical is known as PFAS, P-F-A-S, and it's been linked to an increase in cancer risks, although the extent of it is the harmfulness is not fully known. It's found in a number of things, though, including fire retardant foam used by the Air Force crews. The state is currently suing the federal government for dragging its feet on the cleanup, <laughs> Gwyneth, as you know. All three of our choices, by the way, are ongoing stories. This one feels like it's going to be around for a while. What strikes you about this situation? You know what strikes me is that people <clears throat> look at New Mexico's vast, uninterrupted stretches of natural beauty, right. and we think it's so pristine. But under the surface, we've got, you know, fracking, all sorts of extraction industries. Right. We've got not only Air Force chemicals in one way or another, but these giant dairy herds threatened by the PFAS are also a massive threat to groundwater contamination. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of an illusion that we are not constantly bombarded with threats to um, land and water. Mm -hmm. You know, Andy, this puts the state in a real pickle when you really think about it. This only so tough you can get with the federal government, mm -hmm. but you have to be tough with the federal government to get some movement on these things. It's been years since we've really gotten something going here. A lot of denial, a lot of not getting there. What turned the key this year in your view? What happened? I think Gwyneth kind of touched on it as mm -hmm. the dairy farmers. I think uh. Uh, it became a big thing when, when uh, the, the, the dialogue changes where normally it's the environmental groups that are saying this is unsafe and now all of a sudden you have mm -hmm. people that really depend on clean water and we really depend on them having clean water as a state and so mm -hmm. I think that's kind of where it was like oh wait this is we need to take care of this. You know, you know Jess it's called a bioaccumulative chemical is mm -hmm. what this PFAS is, meaning it stays in your body forever. Same goes for animals, we were just talking about. You know, this that's no small thing. Goes up so, the food chain. Exactly right. So again, I say the state is in a really difficult spot where they can't make these people do this, mm -hmm. but they have to in a way for our own benefit. So what does that leave the state and our engineers and everybody else that has to deal with this? You know, I, mm -hmm. somebody said tough pickle. I'm gonna, yes, I'm gonna mm -hmm. go with that as well. When we talk about, um, when we talk about PFAS and we talk about the contamination and the worries that go along with it, it's more than just industry. We're talking about water supplies that feed people. Mm -hmm. um, and given the, given the, the place where you find these, right, Holloman Air Force Base, Cannon Air Force Base, we're talking about people. So I think that when you move towards a discussion about how, how can we pressure them into taking action, what more can we do besides the lawsuit, you have to take into consideration how do you move these people in that direction mm -hmm. um, towards the truth of this is something that is truly harmful for our communities. Right. We saw that this year here in Albuquerque, we're actually the past couple of years, with the plume mm -hmm. 
-hmm. from off the Air Force Base, Steve, down here moving towards our water supply. And you would have thought that would have been enough to get the federal government to really get moving, but it really wasn't. <laughs> you know, it's really difficult. And, and you know what mm -hmm. surprises me? Um, most, until uh, this spring, the Secretary of the Air Force was Heather Wilson. Right. Good and, reminder. Uh, yep. You know, and still, uh, I'm not blaming Heather on uh, on the plume or, or the mm -hmm. problems, but the her the Air Force has been stonewalling, stalling. Meanwhile, you have uh, mm -hmm. screaming liberal uh, tree huggers like Walter Bradley, <laughs> <laughs> former lieutenant governor under Gary Johnson. You know, he's uh, he's taking a big stand uh, to have the feds do something about it, mm -hmm. and rightfully so. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't or shouldn't be surprising. He's a Republican, lifelong, certainly. Right. But clean water is clean water. It's not a Republican right. or Democratic yeah. issue. And he know. works with the dairy farmers. Exactly yeah, right. He's exactly a lobbyist for the dairy industry now. Yeah. And, uh, and he's trying to take care of his folks. And, uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad uh, that he's, I'm glad he's making noise. Yeah. You know, Gwyneth, interestingly, the EPA has not set a federal standard for this. It's only a, quote, a health advisory level. That's amazing. Uh, you know, I, again, it's a question that can't be answered, and I apologize for asking it, but I, <laughs> how do we get to the next level here? This is a serious issue for New Mexicans and farmers and everybody else that, you know, and, and perhaps this is the opening, this EPA standard, something our our delegation can lean on these folks, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about the science of it. Yeah. Um, I, I think the state was right to sue the feds. Mm -hmm. um, I think that does, you know, give them a, a serious kick in the pants. I think people need to kick and scream a whole lot more. And um, I think we, we need to think more deeply about um, the impact of, of what we do above ground on what happens below it. Mm, I love that. You know, we do our series here, as you guys know, called Our Land. Laura Paskus, our wonderful colleague, does that, and a lot of things that she's highlighted. Get to write what Gwyneth just said just then. We have this image here that is so pristine and so beautiful, and we rely on that image to make our money, to attract people here. That ability, Andy, to switch gears and get very serious about what's not working well. Mm -hmm. I, again, I blame the feds here a lot, but how much do we have to eternalize for blame here? Is there something on the New Mexico side that oh, we could have done better I, or I, differently? I, I, I'm not sure that we could. I mean, yeah. if you're talking about actual spills from the Air Force, uh, clearly there's something happening there that even state officials are not quite sure what's happening, why they're dragging mm -hmm. their feet. I would question whether we actually knew that these were this this stuff was being spilled into the groundwater until we kind of got in there and started mm -hmm. looking at it. So I don't I don't know what the state can do besides just pushing them to. Were we supposed to be monitoring? Well, that's the thing is right. On that job, I don't know. That's, that's the right. thing is that I, they, yeah. we kind of assume that it's their we're it's their land they're leasing from us they're doing their thing and we right. kind of trust that they are doing it the right way. That's right. You know, just to, just to finish up this subject, the idea of in, the environment in total in New Mexico. Yeah. It was a tough year, 2019. We had a lot of revelations about a lot of things, as Gwyneth mentions, that are not too lovely, <laughs> if you want to put it out there for tourist consumption. Right. Change in attitude here about these things? It, we have a lot more vigor when it comes to correcting these actions now, certainly. You know, yes, vigor. Um, I think we're all a lot more aware and listening to some of those outside voices, um, the environmentalist groups, the, the community groups that are getting together and talking about these items. One of the things that struck me, so um, at Holloman Air Force Base, they closed Holloman Lake because the number of PFAS there was just this extreme number. Um, and nobody really knew what to make of that because there's no health guidelines for that, right? Just don't drink the water, and if you get in it, wash yourself off. Um, but nobody's talking about the wildlife drinking that water. Nobody's talking about the water filtration down below that into the Agalala 
um, aquifer, nobody's really talking about how do you explain that to tourists who come to New Mexico to enjoy our great outdoors. Right. You can look at it, but don't jump in it. That's right. Um, so it's really, a, it's a huge question of um, what do what image do we want to continue to pursue and how do we get cooperation from the next level to help us to um, protect those industries. Well put, you know, it's interesting, especially when you factor in, we're now starting a big program to attract people here for our outdoor recreation. Mm -hmm. We have to get those two things straight. Uh, Steve, you know, some might say uh, there is a certain cost that comes with housing these installations here in New Mexico. I've had people put to me that, look, things happen when you're running lots of planes and things and air, you know, that we have to learn how to live with this kind of stuff. And the pushback is always, now wait a minute, this is our state. I understand it's federal government land, but this is our state. They can't just do what they want. And I, again, I'm asking about attitude and changes. And is that cost, or how much are we willing to pay at, at some level? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I remember a few years ago when uh, Cannon uh, Air Force Base was being threatened and our whole uh, congressional delegation, which at that point was Democrats and Republicans, uh, fought hard to, you know, to keep it here, mm -hmm. and, and rightfully so. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, you're, you're right. Uh, I, I think maybe now we can maybe look at some impacts, and uh, and not every environmental uh, threat is uh, you know fake news and uh, and uh, mm -hmm. you, you know craziness. That's right. Interesting point there. We'll have to see how 2020 shapes up because again, these are continuing stories. And like you said, those communities, those local folks dealing with this, this is the ground zero. That's where folks are really. What's interesting yeah. when we continue to talk about it is that we're talking about ground contamination, um, mm -hmm. groundwater, and that is the entire underground portion of New Mexico. And it goes much further than just those bases. It's seeping into um, areas where we're now fracking. And so how does that challenge those that's industries? Right. And that's the tale yet to be told, exactly right. On to our next topic, as the country marches towards not only an election next year, but a very important census count. The official U.S. population dictates everything from funding for federal programs to representation in Congress, as you know. And here in New Mexico, there's a concern about an undercount, and Jess, why is that important, the undercount part? Well, I think that you kind of hit it on um, the head there. When we talk about federal funding, mm -hmm. how many of our rural communities are reliant upon that? How much are we getting from um, the federal level that we would potentially miss out on? Uh, one of the great examples um, of journalism that I've read so far is out of uh, Rio Doso. We're talking about Lincoln County saying no to federal money uh, to help promote an accurate count in that county mm -hmm. um, and what that money could potentially do, and that's millions of dollars for rural county mm -hmm. and I think that plays out a lot more throughout the entire state. Mm -hmm. Steve pick up on that doesn't I want to some other things here about census but that I want to stay on that for a quick second that's interesting because that Ruidoso News report you mentioned Jess that's interesting to me uh, the team you know team leaders being quoted about undercounting it's almost like we're getting comfortable with even just the very idea that we might even have an undercount do you know what I mean there's something about that just doesn't feel quite and part there. of it is the federal administration uh, to be you know, specific Donald Trump mm -hmm. is seems outright hostile to the uh, to the census itself. Mm -hmm. You know, there've been plenty of conservative presidents in my uh, lifetime, but none of them were hostile. You know, there's always uh, you know some. Well, are we going to count illegal aliens or whatever? But uh, mm -hmm. uh, but he seemed. You know, he he makes up stories about how. Yeah, they're going to ask you questions about how many toilets you have in your house. and uh, Which they um, used to ask and, for a uh, long time. And which we know, uh, according to him recently, uh, you have to flush ten times <laughs> just to make it work. Um, but um, 
So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's hard to deal with, and yep. uh, and his cult of personality is so strong. A lot of people, including elected officials on his side, uh, you know, just go along with what he says. It's it's truth, and anything else is uh, fake. Mm -hmm. You know, Gwyneth, this begs a question. Listen to Steve. Is our delegation on this as vigorously as they should be, in your view? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, Senator Udall was here with the census director, mm -hmm. Stephen Dillingham, earlier this year, and I walked around um, some, a community outside of uh, Los Lunas with them, and I was kind of surprised how um, how much detailed knowledge Udall had of it. I mean, I shouldn't have been involved in it for a long time, mm -hmm. but he was working really hard to persuade Director Dillingham that New Mexico needs extra help in doing the count and in showing him places like these, um, you know, unpaved communities that mm -hmm. are unplatted, you know, there are many of them here in New Mexico. I think that our elected officials from the top to the very bottom are, for the most part, very engaged because they mm -hmm. all have something to gain. Mm -hmm. You know, the governor, of course, at the beginning of all this came out with a, a group to follow, follow this along. It's working very well together by all indications. It seems like it's getting there. But again, if you're talking about each person meaning's undercount is at $3,700 in federal funding, we're talking potentially tons of money with even a mild undercount. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It just, this gets very, very tricky, and let alone things like African-American uh, census is a very tricky thing here. Other uh, ethnicities is a very yeah. tricky thing here. You see what I mean? Yeah, I think this is all still to kind of come together. Tribal communities is a mm -hmm. big thing here too. Yep. I mean, and just speaking about our state and talking about Lincoln County, it's very rural, not, not a tribal community, but mm -hmm. it's very far apart. So if you're actually talking and actually trying to reach out to those people, it's not like walking a neighborhood and then you throw into the mix the tribal communities where they are isolated in their, their own communities and then trying to, out, to reach out to them and, and try to explain to them that this is good if you just, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a weird thing. I don't think people are comfortable with sharing information, you know. I'll go back to Gwyneth for a second. Uh, did Senator Udall talk about that with, with the uh, census fellow when he was here? Did he talk about tribal, tribal uh, counts and such? Was that know, part of it? Native communities are treated very differently yeah. in the census because they are so hard to count and there's almost a parallel system. Um, most of the communities are asked how they, wanted, how they want to be counted and here in New Mexico, most of them don't ever get anything in the mail. Mm. They just send people straight out. They do try to hire people from local communities so that it's someone vaguely familiar okay. who comes to your house yeah. or someone who lives in your neighborhood and can say, well, I live five blocks away or I also live you know, on the Pueblo. And so they, they have many, many strategies to try to, to do it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Steve, you've been around for a couple of census or two yeah, here in New Mexico. <laughs> Does anything feel familiar or unfamiliar from what you've gleaned from the past watching census counts here? Is something markedly different how we're doing it? Well, like, like I said earlier, it's just the fact that the uh, uh, executive branch of the federal government seems uh, anti-census oh. and it's, mm -hmm. seems to be trying to spread paranoia. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, a lot of anti-government fanatics uh, subscribe to that and, uh, you know, if, don't give them any information. Don't tell them how many times you flush your toilet. Right. Uh, but, uh, um, so well, that, that's, that's the big difference I see. Okay. Speaking of information, I'm going to start with Jessica on this one. You all can take a cut at this inch if you would like to. Uh, the citizenship question. Remember that big debate? Yep. It, didn't, it didn't happen, did not get on the census. But I'm curious if there was any, in your, all y'all's view here, any kind of bounce from that. But even just the idea of it 
might have shrunk some people back from participating perhaps a little bit. Yes, I think mm -hmm. that's I think that's pretty accurate because when you start talking about something as, as mm, I don't want to use the word diabolical as citizenship, right? Mm -hmm. Even just the mention of it and the possibility that they can glean that from other questions inside the census is a put off for anyone mm -hmm. who's taking it. When you're talking about communities, for example, like Carlsbad, mm -hmm. where we have this huge um, influx of population working in our, in our oil fields, and many of them are um, undocumented workers going out every day, and you're asking them to participate in this. There is, there is a terror there, I think. Right. There is a huge terror there. So I think even just the mention of, even just the previous discussion of we want to know um, mm -hmm. has, has really chilled the reception in some areas. Andy, pick up on that if you would as well. Yeah, I think uh, she has really great points there that um, I think even before talk about putting this question on there, they probably would have been just like Steve was talking about the anti-government people. They're, that's what they have in common. It's like, mm -hmm. wait, the federal government's handing me a piece of paper in the mail or in person, and I have to. I, I don't, people don't even want to look at it because they're like, what? What are you trying to get here from us? So I don't that's even right. know if the question, definitely the question sparked some some fear, but I think mm -hmm. that the fear would have been there even if we didn't talk about right. that question. Yeah, Gwyneth, your thought on that one too, the citizenship question. Um, I think they estimated that it had the potential to depress the count by as much as 5%. Wow. Um, and that was going to be potentially really dangerous for us. But I think it also energized local groups, and there are a lot of community groups out there who are very mobilized in getting the word out there. I mean, we talk to people um, who own a convenience store who are willing to talk to every customer who comes in, a lot of whom may be undocumented, um, and, and tell them, like, this is important. We need roads, we need mm -hmm. bridges, we need a water system, we don't have a sewer system out here, and if we aren't counted, we don't get that money. And I think that message really resonates in a lot of areas. Mm -hmm. Where does that redistricting fit into this, by the way? Gotta it's ask huge. You. Yeah. If you're not counted, that means you're not a warm body who lives in that area, right? So, you know, from a political perspective, it's extremely important that people do get counted because then they exist. Mm -hmm. and their district is properly sized. Mm -hmm. Good point there. Um, let's see what happens. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. I, I just find this whole situation. I mentioned African American community. There's a lot of vigor going there too. We don't want to miss anybody this time around. It's going to be very very tricky. I, I just just don't know. Uh, how it can have in your view, Steve? Have we thrown enough money at this? Because it costs money to, to fully do a census count. Uh, I'm not sure we have. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I, and uh, was there a recent story saying about the, the requested money was not nearly as much as uh, the, uh, the money? Depends on who you ask. That's certainly, yeah. 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 So mm -hmm. uh, no, that uh, and uh, the people in power in Washington. Uh, you don't want to keep it that way. That's right. you know, we're discouraging people from going to the census. Well, gee, that's too bad. Yep. You know. Yep. You want to pick up on that? We'll finish with you on the money question. There's some talk about there that there was. You know, yeah. um, so one of the mechanisms that's really interesting this year is the the, com the local count committees, um, which every county is being urged to to take up. Mm -hmm. Some have said yes to it, and it comes along with that financial support right. um, and the training that goes along with that that familiar face that you were talking about, Gwen. But some have said no, and in Lincoln County was was one of those at the very beginning. They were very suspicious of accepting the money and the mm -hmm. um, requirements that went 
went along with it. But I, I think that when you're talking about is there enough money to get it done and to get it done properly and reach all of those isolated communities that really do need to be counted, probably not. Mm -hmm. We'll see what happens there. With apologies to Casey Kasem, our countdown doesn't stop until we reach the top. But we need a break. We'll be back in a moment. I think it's important for the governor to keep talking about New Mexico as a culture and how we have mixed and how we have accommodated waves of immigrants from all over um, and how we have made that work because I think it does work pretty well. And that's the story the rest of the U.S. doesn't know. That oh, last bit you just say there, they have no idea how we've been able to, not always smoothly, not always comfortably, but somehow we've been able to get to this point where we can just coexist with each other. Our standalone top 10 segment this week is Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's first year in office. There's much that we'll touch on next week that has arisen from her work both on policies that originated from her office and in how she's worked with that legislature. We talked a lot last year about the blue wave. Steve, I got to ask you right off the top. Oh, actually, I'm going to go to Andy on this. My fault. Andy, right off the top, what's been the impact of the blue wave? The governor was very strong with this. We were the first state of the state address. Moonshots left and right, all kinds of different things. How has this played out? I don't know that it's it, that we can really tell right away. Um, mm -hmm. I do think it may have had something to do with her approval rating right now in the state. Uh -huh. I think that there's a lot of people that are not real happy with the quote blue wave, and, right. and they're just kind of not happy with the, the governor. That's fair to bring in yeah. the, the where the polling is right now. She's been pretty steady where she's been at right off the bat. Not exactly cracking into the blue sky, but right. is is it is is this sense that you know? Too much too soon for, for some people? Too much to choke down? Be. I th yeah, I think it could yeah. be. We talked earlier about uh, red flag laws, um, and that that right. came out r real quick. Yeah. Um, and there's pending lawsuits with that, both kind of in Albuquerque and, and statewide. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think some of those things where she, the promises that she made that maybe the Republicans were not too hot on, mm -hmm. and she just moved right through it in her first term. And so I, I think that caused a little. That's right. Got to give the opportunity to talk about those sheriffs, right? Now, right. <laughs> he's brought that up, yeah. and you know, well, that's indicative, though, of when you get in office, the opposition appears, right? And, you know what I mean? And that's so, the sheriffs kind of checked her up a little bit, didn't they? That was yeah. interesting. Well, I think part of part of their stance is um, we want to do things not in moderation but smart. Right. Um, so, are we looking at uh, some of the things that she's talking about? You know, in enforceability is this something that we can um, actually move forward with? But. And just generally, when you take into to consideration how hard of a line they drew with mm -hmm. these types of things, um, I think that you might see that same response in a few of the other um, items that she's brought to the table when we're talking about spending the surplus of, of the state of New Mexico, mm -hmm. um, most of which is generated in southeast New Mexico. You hear some really loud voices on that as well. That's right. You know, I say again, I'm joking, but it's true in politics. The enemy appears once you get in office and the shape That's of it's true. just, you know. But now we've got cowboys for Trump as well. Uh, that the governor has to deal with. And you know, how is she doing with this? I'm off the blue wave just a little bit here, but I'm curious, how is she doing with the opposition, so to speak, that has appeared in front of her? How is she handling all of this? Well, of course, uh, the sheriffs and the cowboys for Trump, a lot of which, a lot of overlap there. Mm -hmm. but, uh, um, I think she's doing okay. I don't know if she's going to win too many of those folks over, but it, it's not surprising that she, you know, after uh, eight years of Susanna Martinez, who, uh, uh, you know, vetoed a lot of stuff. Who, mm -hmm. uh, and she's, here she comes in with uh, more 
Democrats in the legislature than uh, there have been in a while. And um, I remember making a prediction uh, a couple, and usually my predictions are wrong, but this one turned out to be right. Um, back when Susanna was governor, and I think it's about the time she vetoed the hemp bills and all those other things that later got overturned in court. Um, but I thought, you know, this, it's, when there's a Democrat in there next year, and I, this is pretty obvious it probably would be, and uh, I said, the floodgates are going to open. And uh, so, yeah, for a lot of people, you know, conservative folks, I think it was, uh, it was a lot, you know. Oh, my God, gun control and spending all this money on education right. and, uh, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's natural, but yeah. uh, I think she's handled it okay. Mm -hmm. um, her ratings aren't as high as some other governors, but uh, um, it's higher than uh, Susanna was when she left office and higher than Bill Richardson was, of course, in New Mexico. We elect somebody and they get reelected by a landslide, and then uh, by the end of their second term, uh, they're, you know, we don't want to know trouble. the name, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of a tradition, today. right? Exactly. It's very <laughs> interesting how that works. You know, going to the interesting, uh, I kind of flashed a point at you a second ago while Steve was talking, because it just kind of hit me that, you know, you know, the things that you've dealt with, the things that you've watched up in the legislature, how is your sense from a person to person aspect? She's very warm with people. She's very persuasive. She has a, she has a way. She's a politician. She has a way. But sometimes that doesn't necessarily always work once you get in office. So I ask again, it's different from campaigning. How's she doing when it comes to taking in the entirety of New Mexico, the entire rainbow? Well, I think, well, you know, if you look back at Governor Martinez, she couldn't be mm -hmm. more different in that she has this extremely long history of working with the legislature, with the cabinet secretaries, mm -hmm. as a cabinet secretary, um, in, in county government. You mm -hmm. know, she has this, she has been working in government her entire life. So I think she has, um, and, and she's charming, she has a good rapport like Martinez did, but she mm -hmm. has a good rapport with people on all of those levels. More importantly, she knows the mechanics of exactly how they work. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, it might not work in that, out in the end, but I think it's a really good benefit to her that unlike, um, unlike Martinez, and you know, to a certain extent, Richardson had a lot more experience in Washington than he ever did in New Mexico. He was elected two years after he moved here right. to Congress. Yeah. I mean, what had he ever done? Gone to a city council meeting before he became governor? So, you know, um, I think she's much better prepared to do it if anyone can. Mm -hmm. Andy, let's talk about a couple of the bumps she's had uh, going down the road here of 2019. I'll start with how she handled the Karen Trujillo departure. Mm -hmm. How did she do with that? That was an interesting little thing that she had to manage I early mean, on. Look, I think, I think sometimes uh, female governors probably get a little short end of the stick on this sort of thing where mm -hmm. um, she clearly was not happy with what was happening and a lot of us don't know really what, what the back and forth was. We have two sides of the story. Um, and as soon as it happened, it sort of like the, the, the narrative came out was she's a micromanager and she, she knows what she wants and she goes to get it. But I, I think but that if, if it were a man, he would have been decisive if, I and think strong. If, yeah, I think if Bill Richardson did the right. same thing, they probably would have said, oh, he, he's really committed to the That's job. Right. You know? That's right. Yeah. It's very true. Um, Jessica, another bump in the road. Well, maybe not a bump, but a follow-up to the bump I just mentioned was Ryan Stewart coming in, certainly, mm -hmm. uh, as a hire. And the hire came fairly quickly. Yep. 
and it really, you know, he seems like he's got, he's on top of it and things are happening, but how that's that... That's the hope. That's the hope anyway, <laughs> as they say. Uh, but how did she, how did, from your view, how did she handle that, uh, that switch? You know, you always have to be very careful when you are move, making decisions and moving in, in a direction opposite of what you stated in, in, the, in the first run. Mm -hmm. um, when, you, when you take somebody and you put them into a position and you give them a goal, we're always going to be watching for those measured steps, right? What are you, what are you um, striding towards? How mm -hmm. far have you gone? along is this actually going to keep us on the track that you promised in the first place mm -hmm. so when it talk when we talk about how did she handle it um, I think you know and I'm, I'm with you on um, she got a lot of flack for for some of the decisions made in the background mm -hmm. um, but you know when you say here is our new path forward and you're pretty strong in that statement then it's it's well received mm -hmm. now another bump but some good stuff <laughs> uh, NBC Universal's come in under her under her watch and I, I, I add that in only, only to say we now know that economic development is very important as a tool kit for a governor. Governor Richardson kind of kicked us off with that, that you've got to be able to churn business and make things happen. Is she starting to show some chops that way? That's a big deal, this NBC Universal thing. Yeah, um, sometimes uh, I, I think governors get uh, credit and blame for stuff that's... Uh, you know, that's had probably been in the works for a while. Right, exactly. And uh, so, uh, I, you know, I, but uh, yes, yeah, it's good that she's encouraging it. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas when Susanna Martinez started out, she was talking about rich Hollywood producers and where I'm not going to take the money out of the mouths of school children and, mm -hmm. you know, and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, she later came around and pr fairly quickly, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, yeah, she's uh, she's right. She's riding that well, and I hope there's some more stuff in the works. Mm -hmm. Speaking of economic development, Gwyneth, uh, she has had an interesting relationship with the oil and gas business. On one side, saying we, I'm going to be very blunt here, need to clean up our act, but at the same time, thank you very much for the money that's coming in even more than we could have possibly hoped for when I first got this office. How's she doing with that balance? With that Scylla and Charybdis? Yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. Um, I think know? it is a tough one. I, mm -hmm. I think she is very clear-eyed on um, how much we need that money mm -hmm. and how much oil and gas needs to continue in one way or another until we come up with another way to run the entire state budget. Right. Um, and, and I think, but she also has, you know, pretty good cred on the environmental side. Mm -hmm. It's the same challenge that every governor inherits, whether they are super pro oil and gas or not, they have right. to navigate um, those treacherous waters. Yeah, it's true. No fracking ban? That was a promise. No fracking ban, that Ooh. was a promise. <laughs> um, was fought pretty hard. Yeah. You know, we had the governor come to Carlsbad and sit down with us for a while, and if you can take her at her word, um, during that conversation, I think clear-eyed is a great way to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, she understands what oil and gas does for for the economy here. Um, but when, and I know we're going to talk about Energy Transition Act at some point mm -hmm. too. But when mm -hmm. you look at a path forward in diversifying our economy, long run, answering that question of how do you balance mm -hmm. um, good and bad um, with those industries, mm -hmm. she's going to have some challenges uh, working with Republicans. Certainly, uh, settlements with risk management's coming up. We've got uh, PRC dismantling. <laughs> She's going to have to manage that. It's going to be an interesting 2020 for the governor, no doubt. That's going to do it for us this week. We have five more topics to go next time around with this group. We'll see you then. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you're enjoying this season. As always, we appreciate you staying informed and engaged. And we'll see you again next week in Focus.
Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.